PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. I'm Phil Beckman. PA Books features interviews with authors of books about Pennsylvania history, culture, and people. In this episode, we talk with Scott Mingus and Eric Wittenberg about their book, If We Are Striking for Pennsylvania, The Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac March to Gettysburg, Volume 2, June 22 to June 30, 1863. week on PA Books, Scott Mingus and Eric Wittenberg, authors of If We Are Striking for Pennsylvania, Volume 2. Scott Mingus and Eric Wittenberg are the authors of If We Are Striking for Pennsylvania, The Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac March to Gettysburg, Volume 2, June 22nd to June 30th, 1863. Scott, how did you and Eric arrive at, at this project of following the march to Gettysburg day by day? Well, both of us obviously have been very interested in the Civil War probably since our youth. But about 10 years ago, believe it or not, a mutual friend of ours had approached me about working with him on a project that would be Gettysburg campaign related, uh, particularly day by day. Um, so I started doing a lot of research, did, did a lot of work, uh, started writing the book. Uh, unfortunately, he had to drop out of the project for various reasons, so it kind of languished, so I kept playing with it over the next five or six years, and then finally decided, you know, it's time to actually do this right. So I contacted Eric and said, you know, would you be interested in coming aboard as co-author of this project? He and I had already written a very successful book on the Second Battle of Winchester together, so we knew each other's styles. Uh, he actually had helped me break into the publishing industry way back in the 2007, 8, 9 time frame. So it was kind of natural when I reached out to him. And it was, a, it was an easy yes for me, even though I had publicly, publicly proclaimed at that point that I was done with Gettysburg. But when Scott described the project to me, I said, okay, maybe maybe one more. <laughs> so I, I jumped in with both feet. Yeah. Now, the battle itself is very famous, but this period in, in, in the weeks leading up to it that you cover in this book and, and the first book in this series, it really reveals the scale of the movements of what these armies were doing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's always fascinating me, I moved here to York, PA in 2001 after living most of my life in Ohio. And I was fascinated by a lot of the local history because many of the small towns in this area, whether it be Carlisle, Chambersburg, you know, York, um, uh, Mechanicsburg, Shippensburg, just name it, almost every town in South Central Pennsylvania had something to do with the Gettysburg campaign. And I actually found that that was more interesting to me than the battle itself. I'd studied the battle since I was a little boy, uh, probably had close to two or 300 books myself in my library on the Battle of Gettysburg, but there weren't a lot that were involved in the campaign. So the first book I wrote, which Eric was the, the publisher of or in my very first book, uh, dealt with the Confederate movement through Wrightsville uh, and the burning of the world's long, longest bridge. Well, that's just one small aspect. And so for years, I kept thinking, it'd be nice to do the entire campaign day by day. And then when uh, you know, this mutual friend of ours had approached us with that concept, it just naturally dovetailed. But I think the fact that there's so much history of the campaign in all these small towns, not only in Pennsylvania, but certainly in Maryland and Virginia, 
as well that people often overlook that? I'm an alum of Dickinson College, so I remember as early as 1979 when I was a freshman on campus seeing the uh, historical markers on campus talking about when the Confederates came through there and saying to myself, I really want to learn more about this. I want to learn more about Carlisle's role in, in the campaign because it got visited twice. So it was, um, that was one of the things, and I'd already done a lot of work on a lot of the cavalry stuff mm -hmm. that marks the opening of the campaign. And of course, Scott, as Scott correctly mentioned, we'd already written a, an entire monograph on the Second Battle of Winchester. So uh, some of it was new for both of us, but mm -hmm. some of it was filling holes too. Sure. Yeah, one of the things we wanted to do in the books that I think were rather unique, because I'm a product development scientist by training. And, and, and so, I'm a lawyer. And he's a lawyer. But in the product development world, there's an old mantra, the find a need and fill it. Uh, and that's how you develop new products. Uh, and I kept thinking there, there's a need for a new study of the campaign. There was a fascinating book in the early 1960s done by... Um, Lieutenant Colonel Wilbur Nye, uh, who did a lot of work on the rebels come to Pennsylvania. In fact, he called his book, Here Come the Rebels. Uh, and it's a great book, but it's very old, and it's only it's really more on the Confederate side than on the Union side. Yeah. And so, it also wasn't written to modern scholarship yeah. Right. He didn't have access either. to a lot of the stuff that Eric and I have had, had access to. So, so but it's, a, it's a great book, and it kind of served as the blueprint right. for what we were going to do here. So in, in this book, you're, uh, the Confederates are just starting to come into Pennsylvania. Uh, give people a sense of how big the Army of Northern Virginia is. So as the first Confederate units are crossing the Mason-Dixon line, how far, how far afield is the Army of Northern Virginia? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the first Confederates start coming in here in mid-June, the 13th, 14th, 15th time frame. They leave, go back into uh, Virginia, Maryland area. And then additional troops will come in eventually the entire uh, Second Corps of the Confederate Army comes in. So as the infantry starts arriving in June 22nd, June 23rd time frame, the rear of the Confederate Army is still back in Virginia. So we're talking about, you know, what, maybe 30 miles or so the, from the rear of the column to the front of the column, uh, strung out, and they have a different timetable for arrival. So Confederates will be entering the state almost daily. Piecemeal. Uh, piecemeal over a, over a week-long period. <clears throat> so as uh, you mentioned in the book that after the Battle of Chancellorsville, uh, Robert E. Lee meets with the Confederate High Command and proposes a plan. What was his plan moving forward? Why did he want to come up to Pennsylvania? Yeah, well, the, the idea was several fold. One was to try to pull the war out of Virginia for the summer to allow the Virginia farmers to get their crops in and out without their crops being seized by the, the Union armies. That was one. Mm. Two was to relieve some of the pressure on Richmond. Three was the thought that if the Confederates were able to capture a Northern capital, that would be a huge embarrassment to the Lincoln administration that would help bring them to the negotiating table. And finally, the, the last piece of this puzzle was that there was some thought that if there was a major battle north of the Mason-Dixon line and the Confederates won, that that would compel Great Britain and uh, France to recognize the Confederacy and 
that would be a huge factor in achieving the Confederate goal of, of independence. Yeah, there were also some side goals that came into play, one of which was breaking up the North's communications and supply network, i.e. the railroads. Uh, so a number of the Confederate cavalry objectives uh, during the campaign were indeed that, to break up the Cumberland Valley Railroad, for example, the Northern Central Railway, um, and a number of the other um, supply lines, uh, as well as certainly the communications lines. Telegraph stations typically were along the railroad lines as well. Uh, so couple that with uh, also gathering as so much food and cattle, uh, more than... Supplies. Yeah, I mean, at one point, I think, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there was something like 67,000 cattle known to have been taken out of Pennsylvania by the Army of Northern Virginia. So That, that sounds about of, right. Yeah, parts of the campaign were a total success, except the big problem, you got to beat the Yankees on northern soil, and that quite didn't happen. They didn't happen. do that. And that didn't happen. Well, I want to talk more about that foraging aspect of it, because that's a consistent story throughout this book. Yeah. And they weren't just foraging for their own sustenance. They were sending things back to Virginia. Yeah, correct? there were wagon loads of supplies. In fact, the Confederates brought many empty wagons with them. They certainly absconded with as many empty wagons as they could find on the farms here in Pennsylvania, and they would fill them. In fact, uh, we talk about in the book, there's a Union Signal Station down in Maryland that reports the crossings of the Potomac River just constantly filled with Confederates going back and forth, with, you know, load of wagons going south, empty wagons coming back north. Um, and, you know, as a supply raid, this is a smashing success. So what did the Confederates think when they came into the Cumberland Valley and saw all these farms? What were their thoughts? They were amazed by the size and fertility of the farms and how much wonderful produce there was uh, that was growing and the number of animals. They were not accustomed to seeing this kind of wealth after a couple of years of war in Virginia. Yeah, yeah one of the comments that several Confederates have made, and we, we, we have include one or two of these anecdotes in the book, is the fact that a lot of these guys are amazed that the barns are huge, the houses are relatively small. Where they're kind of used to the plantations in the South where the houses were big and the barns were small. And it's kind of flip-flop here in Pennsylvania and that's just something that so many guys write in their diary about. Just the size of the barns just amazes them. So as they, they're coming up into the Cumberland Valley, why, why did they pick that route? Uh, it was actually was, was a fairly easy route to come into. Uh, Shenandoah Valley, as we most of our listeners probably know, um, north of the Potomac River changes the name to the Cumberland Valley. It's really part of the- Same valley though. Yeah, it's part of the Great Rift Valley that goes all the way from Alabama to New England. Um, but, so it's an, actually a fairly easy avenue of invasion. It dumps at Harrisburg. So if you enter the Shenandoah Valley, make a right turn, cross a couple rivers, keep marching north, you'll eventually go to Harrisburg. So it's a perfect way to go. It's also an easier way to control your supply lines because you have less access routes for enemy armies to come after your supply routes versus coming on the east side of the, of the Shenandoah Valley. So it actually was an avenue of invasion three separate years. 1862, Jeb Stewart came through the, Shenandoah, or through the Shenandoah slash Cumberland Valley to attack Chambersburg. 1863, Lee's entire army's here. In 1864, Tiger John McCausland comes through that route as well to attack Chambersburg. So, uh, yeah, the Cumberland Valley, three years in a row, sees Confederate action. Now, uh, 
we're familiar with the big battle of Gettysburg, but throughout this campaign, as the, the troops are moving, there are smaller skirmishes here and there. Uh, Upper Jenkins moves into Greencastle, some of the early forces coming in there, and he meets the first New York cavalry. What happens? So the, the there was a detachment of the first New York cavalry. It wasn't even the whole unit. It was a company commanded by a Philadelphian by the name of William H. Boyd, Captain William H. Boyd. And he and his boys are going to dog Jenkins' advance all the way to the banks of the Susquehanna River, constantly nipping at their heels, constantly skirmishing, uh, constantly imposing obstacles and uh, inflicting some casualties. It is really a remarkable study of small unit tactics to, to look and see what, what Boyd accomplished. And that, that if there's one piece of this campaign left for me to cover, it would be Boyd's, what Boyd did during the uh, invasion of Pennsylvania. But the, the first Union casualty north of the Mason-Dixon line, the first death, takes place on the grounds of the Fleming Farm and just outside of Greencastle when Corporal William Ryle of Philadelphia uh, was shot and killed by one of Jenkins' men, and he's actually buried where he fell. And there's a monument over his grave. If you're ever driving up and down Route 11, on your way into Greencastle, or on your way out of Greencastle, and you see a little obelisk in front of a house, that's where Corporal Ryle is buried. And it's one of those great obscure spots. Mm -hmm. What was the reaction in Harrisburg to the arrival of Confederate troops? I think it was a mixed reaction. There were a number of people that first were somewhat disbelieving. Uh, but in general, most of the populations uh, were starting to pack up. The train station was absolutely packed with people trying to leave. You had floods of refugees coming into Harrisburg, which spread even more stories, some of which were true, some of which were exaggerated about what, what the force was coming from the, uh, the South. Uh, but there was a general movement of people through the town. Uh, and as many people as could leave and wanted to leave did. And on the other hand, you had other people who just simply like, they're, they're not gonna make it this far, we're not gonna panic, we're not gonna do anything. So you had this interesting dichotomy within Harrisburg. Um, the state officials packed up the, all the paintings in the state capitol building, for example, of the past governors, a lot of the uh, banks. Uh, important documents. Important documents. Uh, a lot of the documents are stored today underneath the uh, Pennsylvania State Archives, for example, in their uh, vaulted, um, climate-controlled area beneath the State Library, uh, those documents were all taken out of Harrisburg, just to be sure. How much planning did Robert E. Lee do for this movement? Was he, what kind of instructions was he giving his troops as, as to where they should be going? I think there was a couple interesting things about that. Number one, he told his soldiers, he issued special orders, that they really shouldn't be molesting the civilians, that uh, they can't burn down civilian property, et cetera. But going back to the first part of your question, Phil, there was a ton of planning that went into this. Uh, if you go back to the summer of 1862, uh, Stonewall Jackson uh, had an ordinance officer by the name of Alexander Bodler, who was a Confederate congressman. Um, Bodler came to Jackson's tent, and they were talking one day, and Jackson told him, if you give me 36,000 troops, I'll take the war to the banks of Susquehanna. And so that was kind of the goal for the Antietam campaign in September of 1862 was to move towards Pennsylvania, if not to Harrisburg indeed. But over the winter of 62-63, there were large numbers of spies and agents that went through 
South Central Pennsylvania, there was a famous map maker, uh, Jedediah Hotchkiss, that produced this incredibly detailed map of South Central Pennsylvania all the way to Harrisburg, showing leading roads, names of farms, towns. Uh, uh, it's an incredible amount of activity going on in this area. Eric, do you want to add anything? Yeah, and the map is, is remarkable yeah. because of the detail and its accuracy. Um, it's it's at the Library of Congress. You can you can find it and look at it if you like. It's a it, for its time. It's it's one of the most impressive pieces of cartography I personally have ever seen. Mm -hmm. I agree. How much information did Lincoln and and his staff have about these Confederate movements? Not a lot. Yeah, I was going to say they're so the traditional means of intelligence gathering was work by cavalry. And the cavalry's job was to scout, screen, and more importantly, reconnoiter for the purpose of trying to find the enemy. And the new cavalry corps commander, who at the time was temporary, his, his appointment didn't become permanent until August, Alfred Pleasanton, failed miserably throughout the, the almost the entirety of the campaign in terms of gathering accurate intelligence about the Confederate dispositions and uh, he's reporting back a lot of inaccurate re reports to Washington. Some of it's pure rumors, some of it's hearsay, some of it's accurate. But as a general statement, Pleasanton failed miserably in that traditional role of cavalry of gathering accurate intelligence and sending it back. It really wasn't, you have the cavalry doing this and then you also have the Bureau of Military Information, which is mm -hmm. something that was established by Joseph Hooker. It's an offshoot of Army of the Potomac headquarters. It was headed by a New York lawyer by the name of George Sharp. And Sharp and his scouts, and most of the scouts were cavalrymen from the Army of the Potomac, um, did some incredibly accurate intelligence gathering during the campaign. So they're, they're passing back detailed, accurate intel you're getting reports from guys like Boyd, who is talking, telling them exactly where the, the, the vanguard of the Confederate advance is. So they're getting some intelligence, but not as much as they should have. And as a consequence of that, you know, Joe Hooker, for the, the first several weeks of the campaign, until he gets re relieved of, camp, of command at his own request on June 28th, is constantly groping in the dark looking for accurate intelligence, and he's just not getting it. So the union is being entirely reactive and not proactive right. at all. And that's the important thing to keep in mind about this campaign is that the unions is strictly moving in response. And a lot of it is just blindly groping, trying to find the Confederate army. Um, that's why you have the, the cavalry battles at Aldi, Middleburg and Upperville on June 17, 19 and 21. It's because it's pleasant in trying to find the main body of Lee's army and Jeb Stewart blocking his way. Yeah, one of the other things that's happening as far as intelligence gathering, which isn't often talked about, Eric and I discuss it in this book, and I think a few other people have over the time, and that's the civilians here in Pennsylvania who are running up and down the line of the uh, Cumberland Valley Railroad, um, sending messages as the Confederates are starting to advance using the telegraph. Uh, up to places like Bedford uh, and to Harrisburg, where uh, riders in some cases are going all the way up to the Pennsylvania Railroad to get to their telegraph stations and sending messages to the governor of Pennsylvania. Now, 
Governor Curtin had a telegraph installed in his office uh, that was manned all the time as these incoming messages come in. And State Archives have this amazing collection of the telegrams from the Gettysburg campaign that I went through as we were working on this book. Uh, and again, most of those reports are surprisingly accurate. But for civilians, you know, mostly you know, young men, um, that is a great story uh, in Hanover. Uh, two young men from Hanover are riding all the way down uh, uh, almost to the Virginia, West Virginia line to the Potomac River, sending reports back up uh, from there. And they're relayed through the, uh, the Hanover Branch Railroad to the Northern Central. So you've got this network of information coming in, much of which is unsolicited, not authorized by the military. So it's suspect. And suspect, but some of it's accurate. And sorting out what's what's right and wrong, you know, the governor's working with uh, Major General Darius Couch, who's uh, been sent here to head the United States Department of the Susquehanna. Um, but you know, he himself is still at the mercy of you know what Washington's telling him as well. So one of the one of the big things here is just so much conflicting information coming in. It so was an especially active and especially accurate network of spies in Gettysburg, mm -hmm. led by a local fellow named David McConaughey. McConaughey. And um, McConaughey and his crew really were turning in incredibly accurate reports about where the Confederates were in the area, what they were doing. And uh, McConaughey's intelligence became a critical factor for the Union once the it, the realization was made that Gettysburg was going to be the place where the battle was going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, so they're using all this intel that, that McConaughey and his, his network have, have gathered and mm -hmm. it was incredibly useful to the to meet in the Union High Command. Now as the Confederate troops are moving forward, uh, there are Union troops down on the peninsula in, in Virginia and they're given instructions to move towards Richmond. What what's the plan there? Mm -hmm. So the, that, that movement is often referred to as the Blackberry Raid. Mm -hmm. And the, the purpose of the Blackberry Raid was twofold. It was, let's see if we can't go and make a little mischief and maybe capture, sneak in and capture Richmond. But more realistically, it was to try and pull some least troops away from him so that they would have to go back to face this threat to the Confederate capital. Unfortunately, the wrong guy was in charge of the expedition, John Dix, who was well into his 60s and well beyond his shelf date. And Dix lost his nerve and did not make the full advance on Richmond. He met, got as far as, as Hanover County and said, okay, I'm going to pull the plug on this. Mm -hmm. And it, it's an interesting sideshow to the big show, to borrow a line from Sam Watkins of Company H, because... It, it's one of those what-if scenarios. What if we'd had someone who was much more aggressive and much more willing to take some chances in command of that little excursion? <clears throat> could they have snuck in and captured Richmond? Maybe. I don't think they could have hold it, but, yeah. or held it, but they certainly might have been able to dash in and free prisoners of war and those kinds of things. Yeah, if nothing else, it would force Lee to turn around, or at least. And it would have been a big black eye for the Confederate Absolutely. government. So it, it's a lost opportunity, and some of the events take place after the end of, of if we are striking. So we didn't, we weren't able to get into the culmination of that particular aspect of the campaign, except in 
very, very broad references in the conclusion to the book. Okay. Uh, there's a fellow named Hampton Newsom who lives in Virginia who has written a very good book on the Blackberry Raid mm -hmm. that came out earlier this spring. So if that's a topic that's of interest to people, uh, that that's a worthwhile read. Mm -hmm. So one of the key figures in this campaign, uh, probably notorious for his role, was Jeb Stewart. And uh, he would end up riding through the gaps in, in the Army of the Potomac into Maryland. This would become a significant issue. Why was he doing that? Uh, you, you mentioned that the traditional role of cavalry is to screen mm -hmm. you know, from your enemies. Uh, uh, efforts to gather information as well as to gather information. What, what was he doing? Well, the one at Stewart had approached Lee with the approach that you know, he wanted to, you know, gather intelligence, screen the, screen the operations, but he really wanted to you know, kind of go off on his own to a degree. Uh, and you got to remember that the day before the orders come out, he got beaten on the battlefield correct. for the first time. Correct. At the Battle of Upperville on June 21. So he's kind of anxious at this point in time. Uh, he's given instructions that are fairly, fairly clear that he's supposed to guard the flanks of the army, guard the passes to the mountains. Uh, and rendezvous at some point. Pass to the east of South Mountain. Pass to the east of South Mountain. But the important part for Pennsylvania and what will lead to his ride is he's supposed to stay in contact or find the flank of the army somewhere along the Susquehanna River. Uh, and he'll later find out, of course, the Jubal Orley's column, Richard Yule's columns are going to be headed towards the Susquehanna. So as Stewart starts his movement, his thought right almost immediately is I can get to Pennsylvania, but he finds his way blocked at Thoroughfare Gap by most of the Union Second Corps, has to start swinging around that. Glasscox Gap. Yeah, Glasscox Gap, yeah. Uh, ends up down at Rockville where he ends up um, capturing most of a Union wagon train and then he starts his trek north finally, somewhat belatedly. Well, he had been gathering, uh, relying on intelligence. Right from John Singleton Mosby, of course, the, the gray ghost of right. the Confederacy, who was Stuart's favorite scout. And Mosby had given Stuart intelligence that said that the valley, the Loudoun Valley was clear and that he could pass through Glasscox Gap and go straight up the Loudoun right. Valley. To, and then the Army of the Potomac Second Corps moved. Right. And it not only occupied that space, it, it's cut off Mosby so that Mosby could not get back to Stewart to report this change in situation. So it was a great surprise to Stewart when he comes out of Glasscox Gap and there in front of him in the valley is all of the Second Corps of the Army of the right. Potomac. That was very unexpected. So they have a little bit of a skirmish. They fire a few artillery shells. Then they break off and Stewart goes to a place called Buckland Mills to wait for Mosby. And after 10 hours, he finally gives up and leaves. But mm -hmm. what this means is that the expedition was off schedule almost right. from the very beginning. Right. And then there's further delays all the way through because he ended up taking some time uh, crossing Rouser's Ford. He has a fight at Rockville. He's going to have a fight uh, on June Westminster. 29th at Westminster, June 30th at Hanover. And by that point in time, he's way behind schedule. And trying to find Jim Orley. Orley's already left York and is headed towards Gettysburg because the recall notice has come through on June 29th to start moving towards Cashtown and Heidlersburg. Stewart doesn't know that. So he still thinks he's supposed to go to York and pending not finding anybody, you know, anywhere close to York, he hears that, well, maybe I need to go to, to Carlisle and so, because that's where the rest of the Confederates, in his mind, supposedly are. 
because he's acting on now intelligence from newspapers he's picked up, reports from civilians that he manages to talk to. So he's, uh, he's operating somewhat blind as he's coming through here. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Now, some of the fights that you mentioned, uh, you mentioned that the one in Westminster there, he, he encounters the first Delaware Cavalry uh, led by a major knight who apparently was enjoying himself in the hotel <laughs> establishment uh, prior to this. Uh, ha what, what having happened? a few toddies. Yeah. What happened on that day? So Westminster was an important spot for the Union for logistics. It's the terminus of the Western Maryland Railroad. And it was obvious that if the Army was going to be operating anywhere near that sector, that Westminster was going to end up being the place where supplies would come in, get offloaded off the trains, and then taken in wagons. So. <clears throat> Maintaining possession and control of Westminster was critical. It's one of the reasons why Westminster, uh, north of Westminster at Union Mills, was on the Pipe Creek line that Meade and his engineering staff had selected as the defensive position for the Army of the Potomac to occupy. So it's an important place. And there's this detachment of 85 troopers of the 1st Delaware Cavalry, as you point out, commanded by Major Napoleon Bonaparte Knight. Love the name. It's too bad his martial skills didn't <laughs> match the majesty of his name. Uh, and uh, But as you correctly point out, Major Knight was about three sheets to the wind by the time the Confederate cavalry arrived. And uh, so they come marching up the road from the Washington, D.C. area and uh, with Fitzhugh Lee's brigade in, in, the, in the lead and they, they encounter some pickets of the 1st Delaware who quickly scurry back to advise that the Confederates are coming and the uh, commander of the detachment with Major Knight being indisposed, shall we say, was Captain Charles Corbett. And Corbett, who had a lot more courage than probably brains, um, ordered his 85-man detachment to charge into 4,000 Confederates. And there's this nasty little hand-to-hand -hand fight uh, right across from where the Sheets is in, in Westminster today, uh, where a couple of Confederate officers were killed, and one of them is, is buried to this day uh, in the graveyard of the Episcopal Church that's catty-corner from the county courthouse. And um, <clears throat> at the end of the day, of the 85 Delaware uh, troopers, when Major Knight bugged out and uh, some of the men found him on the road to Baltimore, there were 12. All the rest were captured. Some were wounded, but the, the vast majority of them were captured. But the hearty but senseless charge by Corbett cost Jeb Stewart a half a day. Mm -hmm. Because where there's smoke, there's fire. There was also a small detachment of a handful of New York infantrymen that was there guarding the railroad. And those guys got captured, too. So if there's Union cavalry and Union infantry around, you can't just sort of cavalierly assume that you've captured everybody. You've got to actually, prudence dictates sending out scouts and flankers and finding out, are these, in fact, the only troops? So by the time that gets done, the fighting gets done. It's half a day. And as Stuart's coming through town, he's greeted as this conquering hero. And it, 
He ends up having to go visit with the town burgermeister. He ends up uh, being greeted by the ladies, and which was something he always enjoyed. And uh, by the time they get out to Union Mills, it's cost them the entire day. And one of the sidelights of that as well, and I wrote a book on the Western Maryland Railroad in the Civil War, is there wasn't a telegraph in Westminster. They didn't install, the Western Maryland didn't start, install its telegraph line until 1864. So there was no way of sending any kind of messages back to Washington that, you know, Stuart's in Westminster. They had to rely on these Delaware soldiers by the time they finally got to a place, Reisterstown, where they could send a messenger from there to the Northern Central Railways uh, uh, station at Relay, uh, Maryland, before they could finally even tell people. So while Stewart's lost half a day, the Union still doesn't know he's there until very late in the day. And so there's no way they can even react in an attempt because one of the questions that I get every now and then is why didn't they, you know, somebody go after Stewart? Well, they didn't know where Stewart was either. And one of the interesting sidelines of that is that Stewart and his command spent the night of June 29th camped on the grounds at Union Mills. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the Union Mills was owned by the Shriver brothers, one of whom was a Union supporter, one of whom was a Confederate supporter. So the Confederate supporting Shriver member, his wife cooked dinner for Stewart and his staff, and uh, Stewart played the piano and sang for her and, and all this kind of stuff. They move out early on the morning of June 30th, and later in the day on June 30th, the Union Fifth Corps arrives and ends up camping on the same ground. Okay. So that's how close behind Stuart the Union infantry was, but they had no idea, yep. no clue. And it's, Hanover was far enough away they couldn't hear the guns. So one of the things that happens while this campaign is unfolding is that Joe Hooker is replaced by uh, George Meade as commander of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, why did Joe Hooker tender his resignation? Well, Hooker was, uh, shall we say, wanting to control most of the assets in the middle department, which was a separate military organization than the Army of the Potomac. So there were troops in Harper's Ferry in particular, some of whom had been uh, at 2nd Winchester, others of whom had been in the garrison in Harper's Ferry for some time since early in the year or, or late, in fact, late the previous year. Plus a 10,000-man division that was in Frederick. And division in Frederick. And Hooker wanted control of all of these men, uh, really, honestly, through a hissy fit, trying to get the men, and it became the excuse that Lincoln really needed. Uh, so Hooker finally, in a feat of desperation, offered his resignation because he wants these troops. He's not going to get them. And Lincoln accepted and Lincoln, it. Almost, I think, to Hooker's surprise. I'm not 100% sure Hooker really thought Lincoln was called his bluff, but he did. So at that point, they've with Joe Hooker having been removed from the scene, they've got to identify somebody to take his place. Earlier in June, Lincoln had had a conversation with John Fulton Reynolds. And there's no record, written record of it, but this is something that's come down to us and has yeah. been repeated many times. And ac according to what's been repeated many times is that Lincoln offered Reynolds command of the army. And Reynolds said no, because he wanted to have that same latitude that, that Hooker was asking for and wanted no political interference. Well, that sure wasn't going to happen. So he said no, but he recommended George Meade. After Chancellorsville, Lincoln also offered command of the army to Darius Couch, who at that point had no interest in serving under Hooker, which is how he ends up in command of the garrison at Harrisburg. 
He didn't want command of the army. And he wasn't willing to serve under Hooker again. So who does that leave? It leaves the senior corps commanders of the army who are John Sedgwick, the commander of the Sixth Corps, who's been in command of that corps since the fall of 62. Mm -hmm. It brings uh, George Slocum, uh, I'm sorry, um, not Henry. George, Henry Slo William Henry Slocum, yeah. who is a, he had the nickname Slocum because he was not known for being expeditious in movements, is the second ranking officer, and everybody else is, is relatively new to Corps Command except for Sickles, and Sickles is certainly not a guy you want in command of the Army. And he's not even just he's, recently rejoined the Army. He's just rejoined the Army after right. being off, off on sick leave. Right. So you end up with George Meade at the recommendation of several of the generals, who is way junior to many of the, the senior officers of the Army, meaning that in order for Meade to become the Army commander, these senior officers like like Reynolds, like Slocum, they all had to, and, and like uh, uh, Sedgwick, they all had to agree to serve under George Meade. And then, of course, Lincoln orders Meade to take command of the Army. It's not a request. It is a peremptory order. And, in fact, when Meade was awakened at 3 o'clock in the morning to receive the order, he thought he was, he was going to be arrested, arrested yeah. because he'd been rabble-rousing about about Hooker, and, and he thought Hooker had preferred charges against him, mm -hmm. and he thought he was going to be arrested. And instead, he's awakened by a staff officer from the War Department by the name of, of Hardy, Lieutenant Colonel Hardy, who brings him this order saying, you're now in command of the Army. And Meade didn't want it. He had said many times in letters home to his wife, Margareta, that he didn't want command of the Army. but. Good soldiers obey the lawful orders of their superiors, and he was ordered to take command of the army. And considering that he takes command of the army at 3 o'clock in the morning on the 29th of June and fights a winning defensive battle at Gettysburg with staff that's really Hooker's staff and not his, and a chief of staff that he doesn't get along with in Daniel Butterfield, it is really a remarkable thing mm -hmm. that, that the Army of the Potomac beat Lee at Gettysburg. Oh, yeah. And it is very much a tribute to George Gordon Meade. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk a little bit about the defenses of Harrisburg, since where we are, where our studio sure. is right now, is not too far away no, from where not far there were fortifications. Uh, what was the plan to defend Harrisburg, and what, where were these fortifications? Yeah, Harrisburg had access from the north. There were railroad bridges at Rockville and St. Mary's, but they were more the north. More immediate concern were two bridges that led into Harrisburg from the West Shore, uh, Camelback Bridge, which was a passenger freight uh, type bridge, and right next to it, the Cumberland Valley Railroad's bridge. Um, and the next major passageway across the Susquehanna was all the way down to Wrightsville. So the contingency that the governor and General Couch had was let's try to protect access to Harrisburg proper. There were, there were ferries too, right? There were ferries as yeah. well, but you're going you're to shut the ferry service down, obviously, mm -hmm. keep all the rafts and things, the boats on the, on the east shore if you can. But it was really protecting those bridge crossings. And so there were heights. Um, I can't remember the name of the gentleman. Um, Huber Heights or something along those lines, that owned the properties that are now um, in what was then known as Bridgeport, now known as Lemoyne. And so they'll end up 
bringing in civilians as well as contractors, uh, refugees, uh, black men who work for the railroad, other folks who work side by side to build uh, a series of earthworks, loosely defined as forts, uh, Fort Washington and Fort, Fort Couch, with rifle pits on those heights to protect the major access route to those bridges, uh, which were the most immediate line of attack, at least in the, the idea of defending Harrisburg. Plus there were a lot of emergency militia troops, yep. mostly from New York, mm -hmm. some Pennsylvanians, who were assigned to serve in the defenses of Harrisburg. And these guys were, for the most part, had very little military training or service. Some of them were veterans who had served in the Civil War and had gone home because they'd been discharged because their term of service was up or they'd been wounded or whatever the case may be. And there were some of those who did provide some uh, reliability to these militia troops, but for the most part, were left with the words of their commander, uh, Major General William F. Smith, Baldy Smith, who described them during the pursuit of Lee after Gettysburg as being largely worthless. Yeah, yeah. Now, there was a, a battle fought in, in the area uh, between uh, Camp Hill and Mechanicsburg area called the Battle of Sporting Hill. Mm. What happened? Go ahead. So Sporting Hill is an episode where uh, Albert Gallatin Jenkins, whose cavalry brigade had accompanied uh, Ewell's expedition all the way up to Lemoyne, Camp Hill, uh, was covering a rear guard type of a situation, uh, covering the, the retreat of Ewell's command, which had been ordered to go to Gettysburg, where they are, and then to uh, march out a little further west to Cashtown, where the army had been ordered to concentrate. So Jenkins is providing rear guard coverage, and some of the troops from the emergency troops from Fort Couch. Uh, are sent out on a sortie to try and bring these guys to battle. And they do. Uh, they're under command of uh, some guys who had some experience, including a West Point trained artillerist uh, by the name of Lieutenant Rufus King. Mm -hmm. And they they fight on this the, the property uh, of a farm, the name of which escapes me at the moment. Moses Everly. Thank you. Yeah. Moses Everly's farm in the call, place called Sporting Hill. And it's, it's more of a skirmish than it is a full-blown battle. But there are a, a few casualties, and, and eventually uh, the, these militia troops, who are mostly New Yorkers, uh, break off and withdraw because they just don't have the skills, the, the leadership, or the experience to take on these veteran Confederate troopers, and they, they break off and withdraw. But nevertheless, there, there's an engagement fought that took most of the afternoon mm -hmm. uh, right at Sporting Hill. Now, one of the interesting figures that pops up in your story is Isaac Trimble. Mm -hmm. You say that he was a combat general in search of a command. Who was yeah. he? Isaac Trimble had been a railroad engineer before the war, knew quite a bit about South Central Pennsylvania. He had actually laid out the line of the Northern Central Railway that ran from Baltimore through York County up to Harrisburg. He knew this area really well. He was, was a Marylander. A, was a Marylander from Baltimore area. He also had laid out the Philadelphia Wilmington and Baltimore Railroad. Uh, so he was intimately familiar with South Central Pennsylvania or Southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, at the start of the war, Isaac Trimble had, um, shortly after the Pratt Street riots in Baltimore on April 19, 1861, 
Trimble had commandeered a train uh, from the Philadelphia Wilmington Baltimore Railroad, ran it to the north, burning bridges along the way. Um, and so he got, had, had his name in the newspapers quite often. The Confederacy moved him from being the uh, major general in charge of the Maryland State Militia to a eventually a major general's role within the Confederate Army. He had been a brigadier earlier in the war, fought pretty well, um, was home after being wounded, um, and was coming back to join the army, but he didn't have a command. Uh, so he trailed the army, finally caught up to it, uh, and was what military would term as a supernumerary. You know, he's basically, you know, as you say, Phil, without a command. Uh, at Pickett's charge, he will take command of uh, one of the divisions. Uh, when Pettigrew's, it, Pettigrew's division. Yeah, yeah, brigade. Brigade, yeah, and Tremble would be, again, uh, wounded again. And uh, captured. During, and captured during Pickett's charge. Uh, but he's kind of an interesting character because, again, he's got so many connections here in Pennsylvania. A lot of people knew this guy. So we talked about Stuart and some of his activities in Maryland, but at some point he crosses over the border into Pennsylvania, and there would be a very large cavalry battle at Hanover. Uh, how did how did his troops ended up in, encountering the Union troops in that town? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'll start and then I'll let Eric talk about the tactics. But as Stuart marched into Hanover, his lead elements uh, encountered the 18th Pennsylvania Cavalry on a little intersection uh, just on the, the southwest side of Hanover, uh, surprising the Union column, basically splitting it in two. Uh, but as more and more troops, well, what truly could be called a meeting engagement, start being fed into Hanover, you start seeing more and more fighting. But it's one of the few times in Pennsylvania history that there's been significant fighting in a town. I mean, 300 people get get slashed with sabers or shot or, or uh, otherwise wounded during this action. And Eric, can you want to describe the battle in some detail? Yeah, so Scott's right. The head of the Confederate column literally bumped into the rear of, of the Union Cavalry column. And it, it spreads and becomes a full-blown engagement. And I've done some research on these things, and I've only been able to identify four instances, five if you count Corbett's charge in Westminster, mm -hmm. of urban mounted street fighting, you know, cavalry charges in the streets of a town, and, and Hanover being the most notable right. one of all. Um, it is a full day of hard fighting, it was a delay that Stuart neither wanted nor or was prepared for, but he fights a good battle. He nearly gets captured at one point when he uh, he and his engineering officer, WW, Captain W.W. Blackford, have to escape from troopers of the 5th New York Cavalry. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's got somewhere to be. Judson Kilpatrick, the Union commander, has somewhere to be. And they just break off and disengage, and Stuart is perfectly happy to let Kilpatrick go. But the fight at Westminster cost—I'm sorry, at Hanover cost him an entire day. Right. As an interesting sidelight to this, Jubal Early had stopped for lunch at a tavern that's about eight miles from Hanover as his command is making its way toward Gettysburg. And as he's sitting down and—, and having his lunch, he hears the artillery at Hanover. He's got with him a regiment and a half of cavalry, so he's got plenty of troopers with him. And instead of sending some scouts out to see what's going on in his rear, 
which would have enabled him to link up with Stewart, he just says, eh, it's militia. Mm -hmm. It's nothing to be worried about. And just ignores it and blows it off. And that was where the one opportunity that Stewart had to link up with the Confederate infantry was lost. Mm -hmm. And that's on Early. That's not on Stewart. Right. Stewart didn't know Early was there, but Early heard the guns and did not respond in an appropriate fashion to it. Imagine, if you will, and I'm not one for what ifs, I don't like them, but imagine, if you will, that Early had in fact sent somebody out and they had linked up with Stewart, so had broken away from Kilpatrick and joined Early's column. So imagine, if you will, that as Early's command is, is preparing to attack uh, Blocker's Knoll at Gettysburg, now Barlow's Knoll, on the afternoon of July 1, he's got Stewart's cavalry not only covering his flank but leading the way. That should have happened, and yeah. it didn't. And the reason why it didn't happen is because Jubal Early just made a bad decision. Yeah. Or you could also argue that it didn't happen because of the half day at Westminster, the day at Hanover, the other delays on the route. I mean, Stewart, frankly, should have been in York with Early long before all this stuff transpired the way, way it actually happened. But Eric said, and even then, as Joe Borley's pulling west in, on June 30th with the recall orders to head to Heidlersburg, Jeb Stewart is going to cross his path multiple times, hours and hours and hours later. So, yeah, there would have been multiple opportunities, but this tavern in Davidsburg, Pennsylvania, that Eric's talking about um, is one of the many opportunities. Early had a subordinate as well named John Gordon, who unlimbers artillery on the Henry Raymer farm in Paradise Township in York County. Because uh, he hears the sound of the guns as well. He's got some cavalrymen down there. Some of Elijah White's men are with him. Uh, he doesn't do anything either. So uh, Eric wrote a book, co-wrote a book called Plenty of Blame to Go Around. And I think it's one of the best titles of any Civil War books I've ever read. Because he's absolutely correct that, that you know, this everybody blames Stuart for all this riding around joyriding in Pennsylvania. But he's not. Well, the reality is that there are so many people to point fingers at that it's, it's simply not fair to put all, everything on Jeb Stewart. In the end, if you, if you read Lee's orders to Stewart carefully, and you then study carefully what Stewart did, while the timing was way off, Stewart actually did everything that Lee ordered him to do. Mm -hmm. He obeyed those orders to the letter. Now, we've been talking a lot about the, the Confederate side of this, since they were the ones who were moving into Pennsylvania, uh, but the Army of the Potomac was following them probably had a little bit of a delay. Uh, one of the key figures would be John Buford, who would make his way in, into Gettysburg. So is in, in the days before he arrives in Gettysburg, where is he and what are his orders? So Buford is operating in Maryland. Mm -hmm. He will cross the Potomac River and enter Maryland on the 28th. He will then go to make his way north and will end up at a place uh, that's not far away from Emmitsburg, Maryland. Uh, shoot, what's Fountain the name? Below. Fountaindale. Yeah. Little, little community called Fountaindale that's at the base of South Mountain near the Monterey Pass. Mm -hmm. and, and he'll end up establishing his camp or his two, two brigades, is because one's been detached, around Fountaindale. And then he and his staff will end up riding up Jack's Mountain at Fairfield and seeing the Confederate camps below. At this point, it is all of the Hill's Third Corps is out there, and he can see all this. 
And there are, in fact, two regiments that he didn't know were there from Hill's Corps that are based at the, at the foot, camped at the foot of uh, Jack's Mountain, so that on the morning of June 30th, when he's on his way, and he's got orders to go to Gettysburg and hold the town at all costs. He runs into this Confederate infantry. There is a, a short skirmish. Buford's under orders to go elsewhere, so he breaks off and withdraws. He goes to Emmitsburg. He then turns north on the Emmitsburg Road. He finds John Fulton Reynolds at the Moritz Tavern. He reports to Reynolds in detail what he has seen, and then he leaves Reynolds and rides the six miles up to the town square, and about 11.30 in the morning, the lead elements of, on June 30th, mm -hmm. the lead elements of Buford's command arrive in Gettysburg. And uh, he has given his brigade commanders a certain amount of latitude to choose their own positions. And he, the first thing he does is he declares martial law in the town. He establishes his headquarters at a place called Tate's Blue Eagle Hotel. Unfortunately, the Blue Eagle Hotel burned to the ground in 1960. Uh, so you, you can't go see it today, but there's a 7-Eleven that's situated at the corner of the Chambersburg Pike and Washington Street in Gettysburg, and that is the site of that 7-Eleven is where the uh, Blue Eagle Hotel was, and he'll establish his headquarters there. And uh, If you don't mind me going just a little bit further with this, one of the things that Buford is going to do while he's there is send out lots of scouts, mm. and he's going to start sending back some incredibly accurate intelligence to both Cavalry Corps headquarters and to George Gordon Meade. He knows exactly what the dispositions of the Confederates are. Some of the guys from Devon's Brigade have found Early's command at Heidlersburg. Mm -hmm. Others have had faced off, uh, didn't fire any shots, but they faced off against each other. A Pettigrew's Brigade coming from the west. So he knows there are two very large Confederate forces closing on Gettysburg. And Meade did something that not many people realize. Meade sends one of his staff officers, Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Dickinson of Philadelphia, to go to see Buford, to find out what Buford's plan is, to then go from Buford to Reynolds, to report to Reynolds what Buford has passed on, find out what Reynolds' intentions are, and then ride back to Army headquarters to fill Meade in. So when you hear that this was some bungling together of the armies at Gettysburg, it simply isn't true. Meade had extremely accurate intelligence about the disposition of the Confederates, and he had forces available that had been ordered to hold the town. It was an easy decision to tell the left wing of the army to go there in the morning of June, July 1, which of course it does, and it ends up leading to three days of butchery. But point being that if it wasn't for John Buford, none of this would have happened. Mm -hmm. And the, so the, go further in your assessment of him as a cavalry officer. It sounds like he was very good at his job. Mm -hmm. I, I've spent much of my adult life studying cavalry operations in the Civil War. It's my kind of my specialty. And I will suggest to you that the words of General John Gibbon should suffice. Late in life, Gibbon ended up writing a memoir about his friend John Buford. They had been close friends in the regular army before the war. And if you read that memoir, the opening line of it says, John Buford was the best cavalryman I ever saw. Yeah. Good enough for me. Yeah. Scott, we have just a few minutes left. What do you want readers to take away from a book like this? I think there's a couple of 
basic messages. One is the fact that there's more to life than Gettysburg. You know, what I, as a resident of Pennsylvania, what I'd love to see people do is go out and see these towns. Go explore Carlisle, go explore Chambersburg, you know, go explore York, you know, go, go to these towns, all of which have their own unique stories. You know, walk around, you know, imagine what it was like for these people. Um, and the other key message is the farmers, you know, as you're riding through the countryside here, you realize that, you know, Confederates and Union soldiers alike were terrorizing many of these poor farms, taking horses, supplies, food, personal property in some cases, some cases ransacking houses, um, and just realize that there was so much more to this than Pickett's Charge, because I think too often, you know, what we hear uh, coming into Pennsylvania, you know, as in my case as an Ohioan, uh, is, you know, Battle of Gettysburg was king and then, until you realize, you know, every little town's got their own stories. And it's those stories I want people to, to realize as they read through this book. Yeah. We've been speaking with Scott Mingus and Eric, Eric Wittenberg. They are the authors of If We Are Striking for Pennsylvania, The Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac, March to Gettysburg, Volume 2. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks. Thank you, Phil. Appreciate it. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.